Peace be with you. Good evening. My name is Paul Ramsey. As Brandon just said, I am getting ready to step into the church planting residency here at Sojourn Heights beginning this summer. Um, I'm currently serving in an interim role, uh, leading our musical worship on Sundays, and it has truly been a blessing for me during this interim season to get to serve the church in this way. I couldn't be more thankful uh, to the elders, to God for what he's done, and I'm so excited as my wife and I are looking forward to this next stage of our life together. Um, this is my first sermon ever. Lindsay, my wife, might say otherwise. Um, she'd probably have a number of people in our parish uh, who'd agree with her. Um, but in all seriousness, sitting under the weight of this task has been a really good thing for me. Uh, the task of preaching this text from Hebrews to us this evening. And it really is a great honor to have been entrusted by our elders to, uh, to preach this text in this way this evening. This week is traditionally called Holy Week throughout the church. Uh, it's a week designed to follow the last week of Jesus' life, uh, to remember the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, on Sunday, we'll gather to celebrate Christ's resurrection, but tonight uh, we remember and celebrate Christ's crucifixion and death. And our challenge this evening is clear. Our challenge is this. How do we begin to acknowledge the power and the mystery of the cross of Christ? Essentially, how do we hold fast to the cross with a celebration that will last our whole lives? I want to begin with a story uh, that a friend of mine told me. He was with his wife at the airport. Uh, they were waiting in line to board, and they were standing behind this couple who had two young daughters. Uh, the younger daughter was in daddy's arms, and the older daughter was about uh, four years old. And she uh, was standing behind her mom, uh, poking the bag that her mom was holding. And my friend and his wife uh, began to listen as this little girl started to get visibly agitated. And so when they started listening, they heard the girl saying, Mommy, please, can't I just trade this toy for another one? Uh, that's the, the toys are all in there. All we have to do is open the bag, I trade it, and then uh, we can get on the plane. Uh, and her mom's response was, Now, honey, that's not what we talked about. We decided just a minute ago that you would pick one toy and you would play with that one toy until we get on the plane. And then after the plane takes off, we'll be able to go ahead and pull the bag down and you can trade out toys. And so the next thing the girl obviously said, thanks, Mom. Thanks for explaining that so well. <laughs> now, uh, little girl started getting red uh, in the eyes and she started breathing, whimpering, breathing. Uh, and sure enough, by the time they got onto the plane, uh, my friend and his wife turned the corner down the aisle, and a uh, sweet little four-year-old was in a full-out meltdown, uh, pounding, laying down in the aisle, pounding her fists on the, on the floor, demanding another toy. And the reason I tell you this is because this little girl was given something great. In fact, she chose it herself, and just minutes later, she was convinced that she needed something new. In, in, in stories like this, we see that looking for something new starts with us. Uh, looking for something new starts at a young age, and it stays with us even as we age. We just get more and more mature ways of dealing with it. Rather than publicly throwing tantrums, we instead learn how to privately pursue the latest and greatest, no matter what the cost. And tonight's text is not about something new. Tonight's text is about clinging to something old. Uh, in the middle of constantly searching for something new, we need to be reminded that we don't need a new gospel. 
What we need is for the old gospel to be newly applied to our hearts. And it's my prayer that as we celebrate Good Friday and look at the crucifixion of Christ through the lens of Hebrews 4, that the Holy Spirit would do just that. Uh, that he would apply the old gospel to our hearts in new, fresh, life-changing ways this evening. Our text this evening from Hebrews 4 is a challenging and encouraging text in the context of a book that's really written as a warning and clarification to the Hebrew Christians um, of what it looks like to live as Christians. And I can't think of a better text outside of the text that Camille read from John 19 earlier, the story of Christ's crucifixion. I can't think of a better text with which to celebrate Good Friday um, and, and through which to look at the cross. And tonight I have a twofold hope for us. One, that we would use these truths that we've just read and sung together to lament not just to Jesus, but with him, being reminded of the blessed relationship we have with him. And two, that we would walk away with an understanding of why we're called to hold fast our confession in Christ and how we have confidence to draw near him through the cross. And in order to, to look at our text, I've got three points. Point one, our need for mercy. Point two, the establishment of mercy. And point three, our confidence in mercy. That's our need for mercy, the establishment of mercy, and our confidence in mercy. And let's begin with point one, our need for mercy. I want to look back at the text. Since it's a short text, let's read this again together. This is Hebrews 4, uh, verses 14 through 16. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we see there's two calls in our text. Hold fast our confession in verse 14, and with confidence draw near to the throne of grace in verse 16. And the rest of verse 16 tells us why. That we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So right from a first reading of the text, we're told what we need. Not only is need the last word in our text, but we're told to hold fast to something. And why would we hold fast to something that we don't need? If we just want something because it's nice, are we really going to hold fast to it? Is every decision that we make going to be made through the lens of pursuing it? Are we going to lay down our lives in order to get it? No. Only the thing that we know we can't live without is something that we will hold fast to and pursue in the way that this text calls us to. You see, the Bible is full of people who think they have things figured out and who think they don't need anything. The Old Testament, New Testament, it's full of people who don't think they have a need. And if we look around at the world around us, we look around this room, if we're honest, we look in ourselves, we know that we're tempted to think the same way. We're tempted to think that we don't have a need. We say things like, I'm a person who works hard. I'm a good roommate. I'm polite to people. I serve others. I'm a good parent. I vote the right way. I have a Texas flag right next to my American flag. I attend church every Sunday. I attend on Good Friday. You know, We tend to think that those are the things that we need, and then when those things are all in line, we're great. And when those things aren't all in line, our answer is, okay, go figure out what's out of line so that I can check that box and get back into a state of grace. Jesus, though, as he said in the New Testament, to the people who didn't think they had a need, 
Jesus would say to us that we have a deeper need and that all these things might be good, but they point, they're all symptoms pointing to a deeper need. And so whether this is our first or our 50th Good Friday celebration, we all need to understand our spiritual need because only then can we know the full weight of the cross. Only then will our external surface-level devotion to Christ become an inward joy, inward source of joy in life. So what, according to the text, is our need? In verse 16, it says, again, with confidence we should draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We draw near because of two distinct needs of ours. First, we draw near that we may receive mercy. Second, that we may find grace to help in time of need. First, that we need Christ to give us the mercy of saving us from the penalty of our sin. And second, that we need the ongoing grace of the Holy Spirit empowering us to live lives pleasing to him throughout our whole lives. In the context of this letter, is written to early Hebrew Christians. Um, and the problem with these Hebrew Christians, as we can tell from our text, is that there was this divergence happening. The early church was, was becoming an either-or church with respect to a need that is both and. I'll illustrate this. If you think of the, the game of baseball, uh, when you play baseball, you need a ball and you need a bat. There's a lot of other things that are nice, like gloves and uniforms, but you need a ball and you need a bat. Picture a pitcher standing with a ball, throws the ball over, well, I guess you need plates too, but throws the ball towards another person to hit it, and the person's not holding a bat. Or picture a batter holding a bat, ready for looking at people, who's going to throw the ball to me, there's not a ball. If you lose either one of those, you lose the game of baseball. Similarly for us, we need God's saving mercy, and we need God's ongoing grace. If you lose either one of those, you lose Christianity. If we focus only on the first part, the part where Jesus died for us so that we might receive mercy, but neglect to lean into his ongoing grace, then salvation simply becomes a one-and-done event. Jesus gives us a justified stamp and leaves us to live the rest of our lives. We read scriptures that say we're justified by his free grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus and say, yeah, I definitely needed that. Thank God he sent Jesus for me. And then we pick right back up where we left off five minutes ago. We go back to that sandwich we were praying for. We go back to our TV show. We go back to work. And we go back to our real lives. And these real lives are exhausting. These real lives are exhausting because what you're doing is you're pursuing the status that Christ died to achieve for you. You think that Christ died to save you, and so now you need to go and figure out what it means to live as a saved person. As a professional, you'll be pursuing that status through your career. As a parent, you'll be pursuing that status through your perfect kid or your perfect home. You'll become a church overachiever. You'll try to be the best friend, brother, sister, counselor that anyone's ever had. You'll constantly be manipulating friendships to get Christ's approval rather than living out of Christ's approval. Life is exhausting when you know that you're saved by grace, but you're living by works. Salvation has just become a moment in time rather than something that we're working out with fear and trembling, as it says in Philippians 2. That was the first part. If we focus only on the second part, though, if we get the part where we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, if we get that we need God's ongoing grace, but we neglect to think about the mercy, the saving mercy of Christ on the cross, then we make the opposite but equally grave mistake. If salvation from sin disappears, then true grace becomes the illusion of grace. You start saying things like, guilt is a worthless emotion. You shouldn't feel bad about that. Sin has no weight. And God is so incredibly loving and addicted to giving grace that he can't help but love on and pour out grace on everyone. No need to conform to any standard of moral objectivity. 
holiness because there isn't one. God created you great, and he just wants to make you better. Christianity becomes a good philosophy to help you live your life. Christ becomes a sidekick rather than a savior. And listen, both of these people, person A, the one who gets the saving mercy but misses the ongoing grace, person B, that gets the ongoing grace but misses the saving mercy, both of these people make a grave mistake because person A doesn't need the Holy Spirit and person B doesn't need Christ. And that's the danger that the book of Hebrews is addressing here. Both of these things are important. And we see this language throughout the whole book of Hebrews. Verse 14, when it says, hold fast to our confession. And in verse 16, when it says, draw near to his throne of grace with confidence. This comes in the context of a wealth of warnings throughout the book. Hebrews is saying, yes, get the cross. Get that Christ died for you. Get that he was greater than Moses. Get that he was greater than David. Get that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And also get that he's with you now. And he will be with you now and forevermore. And let me put it this way. The question every time we think back to the cross, every time we try to think about how the cross comes to bear on our everyday life, is that if we had need for Christ and he came and fulfilled it, why do we keep going back to it? Why do we still have need when our need was completely fulfilled by Christ on the cross? And that's the question. I'm convinced that's the question that kept people in Christ's day from embracing Jesus as the Messiah. They were expecting a conquering king riding in on his white horse and fixing everything, but Jesus wasn't that. He was so much more. And it's my hope that we'll see the question of why we're to go back to the cross directly acknowledged as we look at who Christ really is by how he established himself as our Savior. And so that brings us to our second point, the establishment of mercy. Ultimately, the establishment of Christ's mercy for us can be summarized as this. Christ came down and took on flesh to become exactly as we are in the flesh in order to die and save us. Christ came down and took on flesh to become exactly as we are in the flesh in order to die and save us. The reason we received mercy and will find grace to help in our time of need is because Christ knows us. Christ is with us. He knows us personally. He knows us intimately. Listen to verse 15. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ became a man and was tempted as a man because God, throughout the ages, had been promising that our Savior would be a man. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Romans 5, interprets it this way. Romans 5.18, he says, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So Paul is saying, just as Adam's sin was commuted to all who followed him, so Christ's righteousness would be commuted to all who were to follow him. Now, the entire doctrine of Christ's humanity would be impossible for me to talk about tonight. But let's focus in on verse 15 for just a minute. I want to camp out here and really get what verse 15 is saying. It says, he was not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is a rhetorically powerful double negative. Not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in every respect that we are. His temptation was real. Often we face the temptation of treating Christ's temptation by the devil. He spent 40 days in the desert being tempted by the devil, and we're tempted to say, eh, that was just a formality. We make Jesus into this emotionless, unaffected, Vulcan-like, 
That was Star Trek reference. Yeah. Uh, unemotional, unaffected, non-human God, because we think that makes much more sense. But Hebrews is saying that simply isn't true. Christ's identity as our sympathetic high priest isn't that he had pity on us. It's that he was tempted like us. I want to read a C.S. Lewis quote from Mere Christianity because he says it really well. Listen to this. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people don't know what temptation means, and this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And listen to this. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. Brothers and sisters, this is our Christ. This is our Savior. We don't believe in some unaffected, disinterested God up in heaven. We believe in a God who became a man, came down to live the life that none of us could live, die the death that each of us deserve, that we might be united with him now and forever. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that is our third point, our confidence in mercy. We have a God who came down to be with us, entirely like us, without, yet without sin, that he might save us and unite us with God forever. And therefore, we can draw near to him with confidence, trusting in his grace and mercy. Listen, the Jews of this day, to the Jews uh, in Christ's day, drawing near to God was, they didn't have a category for it. Um, it was something unheard of, something unthinkable, because when the Jews went and worshipped at the temple, they were separated from God, separated from the Holy of Holies by a curtain. Only one man, once a year, the high priest could go in and make atonement for his sins and for the sins of the people. But for the rest of the year, no one could enter the presence of the Holy of Holies. Today is Good Friday. We remember Christ's crucifixion. And I want to look at the last moment of Christ's life. At the end of his crucifixion, right after he proclaimed that it's finished, the Gospel of Mark puts it this way. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this, in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now we might just skip over the part that says the curtain was torn in two. It's cool. It's a cool detail. It must have been a play or something going on in the temple and the curtain fell down. But for the Hebrews, this was no light detail. This was their key to understanding the cross. Christ's death was the ultimate sacrifice, the last sacrifice to fulfill the sacrificial law of God. And this was the picture of the cross for them. In Hebrews 10, we read this, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And that was how the cross made sense to them. Christ, in shedding his blood, made a way for us to pass through the curtain, giving us direct access to God in heaven. And what did this access look like? Look back at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We are to hold fast our confession that Christ is Lord and draw near to his throne of grace because he has passed through the heavens. Briefly, I want to look at what this is talking about. If you remember, after he died, he rose again, and he appeared to an estimated 500 people after his resurrection. And after he appeared to these people, he ascended into heaven. It's called the doctrine of Christ's ascension into heaven. Mark 16 puts it this way. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3 takes it a step further. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Hebrews 9 takes it further. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And finally, in Hebrews 7, consequently, he, Jesus Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. This means that Christ is in heaven right now, pleading for us to God the Father. His throne is established, and every time we pray to God through the Holy Spirit, we pray directly to God in heaven. We don't go through an intermediary. We pray directly to God. And the invitation, brothers and sisters, is so much more than just sitting on our hands, waiting to be snapped up into God's grace. We don't sit living our lives without God and praying so that God would enter into our lives and pull us out of situations. The invitation is so much richer than that. The invitation to us is to draw near at all times because we have open access through the curtain right now. We don't have to pray for the Spirit to fall because the Spirit has fallen. We have the Holy Spirit with us, guiding us and protecting us, counseling us as we live our lives. We know that we are God's workmanship, created for good works that he prepared for us beforehand. We know that for those who trust in him, he's working all things for our good. The God in whom we trust is a God who appoints each and every circumstance that we're in. He's with us through it all and he uses it for our good. Whatever life brings to you, when your life is as good as it can be, Christ hears your prayers. When you cry yourself, when you cry yourself to sleep at night, you have direct access to God in heaven through the door that's been opened through the curtain by the body of Christ. In the highest, most wonderful, celebratory season of your life, you have open access to God. In the darkest moment of your life, when your need is right before your face, you have direct access to God. And in the ordinary, mundane, everyday tasks that we find ourselves living in the majority of our lives, we have direct access to God, the Father, who is providing grace to help us in our times of need. Listen, your circumstance doesn't define you. Christ has defined you. Let me close this way. 
the girl with her little toy was a, was a simple illustration that I opened up with, and it might seem trite, might seem kind of cheesy, because we can look in and say, well, she didn't really need her toy. Let's not make that same mistake. Let's instead rest in the old gospel, the old story, and lean into the Holy Spirit, our helper and counselor, drawing near that this gospel might be made new and fresh and wonderful each and every day as we know it will be now and forever. So what does the story of Good Friday tell us? It tells us that access has been opened through the cross of Christ. And he's with us through it all because he knows us. He knows us personally. He's been tempted like us. He knows everything about us. And he invites us to approach him with it all, through it all, as we were created to do. Because he is there at his throne, pleading with his Father on our behalf. Hear this call, brothers and sisters. Let us draw near to his throne with confidence by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. He is the steadfast anchor of our souls. He is our great high priest. Lean into him, maybe even for the first time, and let us in him, through his death on the cross and his resurrection to glory, find life eternal by the grace of God for his glory. Amen. Let me pray for us.